Do you know the meaning or the purpose behind a wedding veil? I didn't, so I did some looking up on the internet. So if these are wrong, blame the internet, not me, but it works for now. In ancient cultures, it was a sign of belonging that a woman was now a wife and belonged to a man. In Babylonian culture, it was a status symbol reserved for high-class free women. Not every woman was allowed to wear a a bridal veil. Supposedly in Roman times, brides would wear a red veil to frighten off any evil spirits that wanted to kidnap the bride before the wedding. So a veil was a very important thing. In the Middle Ages, veils were used to hide the features of the bride in an arranged marriage. So the groom couldn't back out until after he was already married to that woman. Devious. And for others, the veil symbolized modesty and obedience. Maybe you're like me and you've never wondered before, what's the purpose or the meaning behind a bridal veil? Or it's just something that brides wear. Whether or not a wedding veil represents something or is just another accessory for a wedding, a veil covers something. It communicates something too. Let me show you another type of veil here this morning, one that you've probably seen a lot of and one that you might even own yourself. Here you go. Here's a veil. We call this a mask. It's a different type of veil, but it's a veil nonetheless. It covers all the holes that I bring oxygen into my body and oh, that I bring oxygen into my body with and ex- oxygen or carbon monoxide I guess coming out. This mask communicates something. It communicates that not everything is well in the world. It communicates that there's a problem. And there's a whole bunch of other things that a mask can communicate, but you won't know unless you actually talk to the person who's wearing the mask, which I would encourage you to talk to people. But veils always cover, they always conceal, they always disguise something. They communicate, and they serve a purpose. This morning we're going to look at a different veil, a veil that's way more predominant than any COVID mask. But I hope that the next time you see someone wearing a mask or you put on your own COVID mask, you're reminded of this veil. I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. As you read verses 12 through 18, as we look at this veil and how it's removed. And I'll invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 12 and reading through verse 18. Again, reading in Jesus' name. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Father God, these are your words, and your word is true. We pray this morning that you would sanctify us in your truth. Lord, that you would give us understanding and insight into your word, but Lord, that you would also help us to see you. Remove the veil from our hearts here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's hard to make much sense of this passage 
without going back to Exodus and familiarizing yourself with what Paul is referring to here. So we'll kind of highlight briefly here Exodus chapter 20 through 34, and I invite you to read those sometime this week, maybe even today. But God gives Moses the law in Exodus 20 through 23. He gives all sorts of different laws and commands for the people to keep. And in chapter 24, God invites Moses, and only Moses, to meet him on the mountain, to be given the stone tablets, the tablets with the law and the commandments written on them for their instruction. So Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud of the Lord covered the mountain, and the glory was like a consuming fire on top of that mountain. For 40 days and for 40 nights, Moses was on the mountain and spoke with the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, explaining to him the plans for constructing a sanctuary among the people for the purpose that the Lord might dwell among his people, that all the people would know the Lord. It was during this time that the people apparently grew impatient, and they demanded that Aaron make for them a God, the God who delivered them out of Egypt. So Aaron gathers all of the gold and melts it down and produces a golden calf for the people to worship, declaring, this is the God who delivered you from Egypt. The Lord knew what was going on, and he informs Moses and tells Moses to go down and check it out. Moses goes down to the camp carrying these two tablets of the law, and what he sees infuriates him, and he throws them down, shattering those tablets. 3,000 men were killed that day for their rebellion against the Lord. The next day, Moses again went to the Lord to ask him to forgive the people for what they have done. Moses alone again enters the tent of meeting, and the people would stand at the edge of their tents watching as Moses went in to meet with the Lord, prohibited from going in themselves. Moses alone entered the tent of meeting and meets with the Lord, and he asks the Lord to show him his glory, and the Lord responds to him with this. He says this, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and you will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So here God is saying, this is how I will reveal to you my glory, Moses. And then we read that passage that we're familiar with at the end of chapter 33, where Moses is to be hid in the cleft of the rock. And God says, you cannot see my face, but I will cover you, and I will let you see my back. And then in Exodus chapter 34, the Lord passes by Moses and proclaims these words as he passes by. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses spends another 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord up on that mountain. And he again is given the Ten Commandments on another two tablets of stone. As Moses comes down from the mountain this time, his skin is shining with glory. And the people are afraid to come near to him, not really sure what to do. And in verse 33, it says that when Moses had finished speaking with them, he puts a veil on over his face, hiding and covering that glory that was still emanating from his face. But whenever Moses spoke the word of the Lord to the people, he would take that veil off and they would once again see the glory of the Lord 
reflected off of Moses' face. The glory of God's law. When he was done speaking again, he would put that veil over his face, protecting them from this unveiled glory. There's plenty to unpack in those 15 chapters in Exodus. But allow me to recap a few significant parts here that deals with our text this morning. First of all, only note here that Moses was permitted in the presence of the Lord. Only Moses. Everyone else was banned from being on that mountain or from even touching that mountain. But Moses is permitted to be in the presence of God. They saw the glory of the law that day off of Moses' face as he comes down. Again, only Moses is permitted to be on that mountain for 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord. The rest of the people, again, are prohibited. When Moses comes down from the mountain, his face shines brightly, and the people fear him. And then he puts a veil over his face, shielding them from the glory of God. Shielding them from the glory of the law of God, which Paul writes here in verse 7 is the ministry of death. Connecting that passage with our text in verse 7 explains Moses had a ministry, and his ministry was a ministry of death and of condemnation. The people saw the glory of the law when they saw Moses' face reflecting the glory, and they couldn't handle it. He needed to be shielded. They couldn't stare into his face. It caused fear in their hearts. This was a reflection of the holiness of the Lord. And as they see Moses' face shining, they're reminded again of their sin, that I can't look at this. Woe is me, for I am undone. The law gloriously condemned the sin in their hearts. And it revealed to them God's judgment of sin, which is why it's called the ministry of death. God says that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And as the Israelites gazed upon Moses' face, they were reminded of their own sinfulness, and rightfully so. However, they seemed to miss the significance of Moses' veil. That veil itself became a symbol of the covering for the condemnation of the law. Rather than dealing with their sin, however, they continued to keep Moses veiled, so to speak. They continued to understand Moses in a certain way, refusing to recognize their own sinfulness. Notice what Paul says in verse 15. He says, a veil lies over their heart. Note here he says, a veil. It's not the veil. It's not the same veil that Moses had. It's not the same veil shielding them from God's glory, but this is a different veil that they placed on their own hearts. It's a different veil than what Moses wore. And this veil doesn't lie over the hearts of these stubborn Israelites only. But this is the veil that's our default position. This veil will tell you that by a certain keeping of God's laws or not doing bad things, somehow you'll be able to appease God and God will be happy and pleased with you. Man is always trying to get right with God through the law by doing enough. By appeasing God, regardless of what religion it is, man is always trying to appease whatever God he serves by offering him some kind of sacrifice. God, if I, if I do this for you, then I'm expecting you to, to give me water on my crops because I kind of need that right now. If I do a certain number of things and I can manipulate God to do these different things or God will be happy with me or I can make up for my past sins, it becomes all about what we do as though it were somehow possible to please God with our own actions and to atone for our own sins. And if you want to test this out, you can ask any random sample of people why they think God should let them into heaven. And they'll begin to point you to their own works. 
They'll begin to point you to their own goodness. Or maybe I should say they're not as bad as others-ness. As long as I'm not the worst person in the room, then God should let me into heaven, but he definitely shouldn't let this person in because I'm better than them. We begin to point to ourselves, pointing to our own works, and we cover up the holiness of God, and we trick ourselves into thinking that we can somehow make ourselves good enough. And that veil lies over our hearts, refusing to gaze into the holiness of God. One of the earliest Lutheran theologians, Philip Melanchthon, explains Paul's understanding of the veil with these words. And it's a longer paragraph, so bear with me here. He says this, Paul understands the veil to be human opinion about the entire law, meaning the Ten Commandments and the ceremonial laws that were given to Israel. As when hypocrites suppose that external and civil works satisfy the laws of God and that sacrifices and rituals justify before God by the mere performance of the right. Meaning that as long as I go through the motions, as long as I go to church, or as long as I put my money in the offering plate, as long as I do enough good things, do what I'm supposed to do, then I'm good to go. That's what he's saying is the veil here. He says, but this veil is removed from us. That is, the error is taken away when God shows our hearts, our impurity, and the magnitude of our sin. And then we see for the first time that we are far from fulfilling the law. Then we learn how our smug and indifferent flesh does not fear God and does not truly believe that God looks out for us, but instead thinks that human beings are born and die by chance. Then we experience how we fail to believe that God pardons us and God hears us. But when we are consoled by faith through hearing the gospel and the forgiveness of sins, we receive the Holy Spirit so that we are now able to think rightly about God, to fear God, and to believe him. These things make it clear that the law cannot be kept without Christ and without the Holy Spirit. So there is that veil, understanding that, that you can do something to please God, that you can make yourself somehow good enough. That veil could be summarized with these four words, I can do it. And that veil is obliterated when we realize how deep our sin dwells within us, how rotten to the core we really are. And that veil, again, is obliterated when we see the wages of our sin displayed on the bloody Son of God on the cross. And when that realization of the enormous debt of our sin and our utter inability to pay it off comes to us, the veil is torn. And we see a glimpse of God's glory, of God's holiness and his righteousness and his standard. And we begin to realize how bad off we truly are. And we begin to understand that we'll never be able to make ourselves right with God. However, we're reminded that the Lord is one who forgives iniquity. The Lord is one who forgives transgression and sin. We're told of the one who is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The Christ who fulfilled the law on our behalf. We're reminded of the one who knew no sin, who became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And as that veil continues to be torn, we see God's glory in Jesus Christ on the cross for us. We behold God's glory in Christ, his son, our Lord, and our redeemer, and our righteousness. The veil is removed in Christ alone, and we can gaze intently into that beautiful glory of God. Paul writes in verse 16 that whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. 
And this is done again by grace through faith, by believing in Christ, who was crucified, dead, and buried, and rose again for you. The veil of good works only fools ourselves. It doesn't fool God, and it doesn't cover up the true condition of our hearts. But the gospel, the gospel tells us that Christ has atoned and paid for all sins, and apart from any human merit, has obtained and won for people the forgiveness of sins, the righteousness which avails before God and eternal life. We can never cover it up. We can never hide it from God's sight. We can never undo what we have already done. But God in Christ has dealt with that already through his son on the cross. And as this gospel is proclaimed, the word of God is proclaimed and the spirit of God is at work pointing people to Jesus. The spirit of God is at work removing that veil from our flesh. The spirit of God is at work pointing us to Jesus. And we see the Spirit at work when people come to Christ, when they lay aside their own veils, when they lay aside their own deeds and actions and works, and they trust in Christ instead, when the Lord is glorified. This is what the Spirit does. This is how the Spirit works. Where the Spirit is at work is in the believer's life. And where the Spirit is at work in the believer's life, there is freedom from the condemnation of the law. As Paul writes in Romans, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the Spirit at work in our lives. There is freedom from the terror of our sins. As John writes, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is freedom from the burden of being good enough because we are now righteous through faith in Christ and we have that righteousness of Christ and we are his children Condemnation of the law is done away with, and it reaches its end when the righteousness of Christ comes to us by grace through faith. And this hope of being righteous before God, this hope of being presented before God as holy and pure, as undefiled, as being good enough, is a confident hope that we have only through the finished work of Christ. It comes from beholding that very glory of God displayed on Christ on the cross. Not from attempting to shield or cover God's glory. Not from convincing ourselves that we can somehow be good enough or we can atone for our own sins. It comes from beholding the very glory of God. Again, not from attempting to shield it or cover God's glory. And that veil is removed in Christ who became flesh and dwelt among us and has taken away the sin of the world. Christ has removed the veil. And Christ continues to remove it wherever his gospel is proclaimed. Removing that veil, though, isn't the end of the story. Paul writes in verse 18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. One theologian explains this glory of the new covenant in this way. He says, We all are like Moses with unveiled face, reflecting the glory of the Lord, with a face that has been and that remains unveiled, and that, unlike Moses' face, we never veil. As Moses' face reflected the glory of God on Sinai, so our face ever reflects the glory of the Lord. No longer are we kept from God's presence, but instead, Christ lives in us and dwells with us. The Spirit abides in us. No longer are we kept from God's presence, 
what used to be reserved for the only the highest minister of the old covenant and the new covenant now comes to every single believer in a permanent inward way. And we all shine with glory, the glory of God as Christ lives in us. And as we behold this glory of the Lord, he changes us and he transforms us so that we are different through the renewing of our minds, aligning our minds with God's word. As we gaze upon Christ's glory and what he has done for us, the spirit continues to be at work, transforming us from glory to glory, continues to make us more and more like Christ each and every day. We may not always feel it. You may not always see it in your life. The Spirit is at work in our lives through His Word, transforming you into the image of His Son, to the image of His glory. So what does that mean for us? Simply put, we're not the same after we behold the glory of the Lord. We're not the same when we're reminded of the debt of our sins and then refreshed with the gospel that Christ has accomplished forgiveness for us and has given to us His righteousness. The veil of our own hearts is removed and our faces remain unveiled and we reflect the grace of God to a lost and dying world. This transformation and reflection begins the moment that that veil has been taken away, the moment that faith is created in our hearts, the moment that Christ comes to you. This transformation and reflection begins and it continues ongoing until Christ calls us home. We are being transformed daily and continually. Not because we woke up some morning and said, today's going to be a good day and today I'm going to make myself more like Christ. But because the Spirit continues to work in our hearts and in our lives through His Word as He continues to dwell in our hearts. In Christ we see that unveiled glory of God, His holiness and His justice. As we see that the crucified Savior on the cross, we recognize our sinfulness but we also see his grace, his goodness, and his mercy, and his compassion, his loving kindness and forgiveness. As we say that he has paid the penalty, the price for that sin. And now that veil has been removed, and we, even you and even I, are being transformed from glory to glory into the glory of the Lord, all by his Spirit. So the next time that you're out and about this week, and you see people wearing these funny little veils, the next time you put on a veil for yourself, I want you to think of this passage. I want you to think of this veil. Think of Moses, who wore a veil to shield the Israelites from the glory of the law, the condemnation of sin. As they saw that God is a holy and just God, and they revealed that they, they knew that they were sinners. Think of Christ, by whose death that veil was torn and the law had been fulfilled and the punishment has been paid. And think of the Spirit who day by day is transforming you into that same glory of the Lord and reflect on that glory of God in Jesus displayed on the cross and reflect that glory in your face with an unveiled face to a lost and dying world who needs to hear what Christ has done and who needs to hear that that veil can be removed and is removed in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for your word and for its truth. We thank you, Lord, for your grace in the Old Testament as Moses was able to wear that veil to shield the people from your glory. Lord, the glory of your law which condemns sin in the flesh. 
Father, as we gaze upon your Son, let us see the punishment for our sins. Let us see the price, the wages for our sin. Let us not take that lightly. Father, let us also see the payment for our sin too, that we would be forgiven through Jesus Christ and through him alone. Father, we pray that you would continue to work that good work in our hearts and in our lives through your word, by your spirit, that we would continue to be free from the condemnation of the law as we receive the righteousness by faith. Lord, we pray that you continue to transform us into glory from one stage of glory into the next until you call us home. We thank you for your word, for your truth, for your gospel, and for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.